So today we are at week two in our series, How Do I Know If I'm Really Saved? And last week we looked at something of an introduction to this topic, and today we're focusing on this question, how do I know if I'm really saved if I have all these doubts? Well, on the one hand, there is belief, and I'm not sure if you've thought about what the opposite of belief is, but I would not say that the opposite is doubt, but the opposite is disbelief or not believing. And then there is this word doubt that figures somewhere in between. The word doubt and double are closely related. When we doubt, we are in two minds going back and forth. I've read and heard that in the Chinese language, they speak of doubt as uh, having a, there is a person with a foot in two boats. So imagine just trying to keep great balance with one foot in one boat and another foot in another boat. And you can just see the, the movement and the tension of pulling back and forth. But I want to take you, first of all, to a question that I struggled with as a younger Christian. Here's the question. How is it that I lived moments and seasons in my life wondering where God is, struggling with doubt, whereas in the Bible, there were these heroes of faith who walked confidently with God. Why was it that I doubted, but if I could just have walked with Jesus and talked with him while he was on earth, then all of my questions would have been resolved, right? Well, here's where I want to go with this. Part one of my message I would like to think with you about three case studies of biblical heroes that struggled with doubt. And we're going to think about, I want to think with you about three biblical characters, Habakkuk, David, and John the Baptist, and what it meant for them to walk with God. I'd like for us to think about their life of following God, of trusting, and then also struggling with that trust or doubting. And then in part two of the message that I'm going to give to you, I'd like to explore a handful of verses from this little New Testament book of Jude as we think on what he teaches about doubt and how to live with faith. So three characters, and then moving on later to the book of Jude. So let's go. First of all, I want to think with you about Habakkuk. Habakkuk, maybe you don't know that name. Maybe you haven't thought about this individual very much. Because tucked in the Old Testament prophets, there is a little three-chapter book with Habakkuk's name. And uh, his name is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Usually, though, the prophets had a job of giving messages to the people, telling the people, you need to change your lives and you need to return to God. And typically, the messenger or the prophet was a messenger confronting God's people. Habakkuk loved God. He spoke for God. 
But in his book, Habakkuk turns the tables and puts his life on the line by confronting God. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, we hear his forceful complaint. How long, O Lord, how long must I call for help, but you do not listen? Think of that question. It's one of the toughest questions that we'll ask. God, you're not fair. God, you're not listening. Even when I call out to you. God, you see the problems in our land, but you do not act. This disheartened prophet cries out, I thought you were a God of justice. Or in Eugene Peterson's more freewheeling translation, he puts it like this. Justice is a joke. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? When we look at the world around us, God, why aren't you setting things right? And then God answers in the following verses. I'm going to do something about your concerns. Look at what's happening in your world, for I'm going to do something that you won't believe. God says, I'm about to raise up this, the Babylonians, this evil empire, this aggressive nation, And they're going to come, and they're going to bring justice and judgment on Judah. So Habakkuk says, really? That's your answer? That makes no sense at all. God, why should you let the bad guys win and use the bad guys to defeat us people who are trying to follow you? Why should God let the bad actions of Judah be punished by the Horrible actions of the Babylonians. It's a shocking answer for the prophet. God seems to be saying, you can ask me any question you want, but prepare yourself to be amazed by my answer. And I think we have a tendency in our prayer life, we bring our requests to God, but then we prescribe how God should answer our requests. And that's what Habakkuk did. You have to fix the problem, but you have to do it in a certain way. And instead of delighting and rejoicing in God's answers and God's timing, we'd rather write the script. We box God up and we tell him how he should act. So Habakkuk waits. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, I'll stand At my watch and station myself on the ramparts, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. The prophets are sometimes called watchmen who stand at the top of towers waiting to see what God is going to do. And for all intents and purposes, Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to wait, God, for you to take the next step. I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm going to wait and I'm going to let you explain it to me. Just wait. Do you wait for God to give you the answers? In the Psalms, there's that kind of waiting. In the morning, I lay out my requests to you, God, and I wait before you expectantly. Really, our options are very few. In our distress, we can refuse to wait and try to manage life by meeting our own desires. 
Or we can wait by living in faith in the character of God. Chapter 2, Yahweh answers Habakkuk once again, and this time tells him to write down what he sees. Even though the answer lingers, the answer is going to come. It won't delay. God's the righteous judge. He's going to set things right, but it's according to his time, not ours. And by chapter 3, Habakkuk has moved to a posture of adoring God and trusting God. He complained about God's silence, and now he's actually rejoicing in the goodness of God. Listen to Habakkuk's staggering confidence in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud. Lord, so you're not giving me the answers. There's no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, this is a problem. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. These are some of the most amazing verses of assurance and trust, but they only come after a prayer by someone who starts out asking so many questions and just saying, God, what are you doing? Habakkuk didn't have all the answers, and in fact, he cries out to God. But in the end, he moves to a posture of trust. David Think of David. David was the greatest king in Israel. He was described as a man after God's own heart. And besides leading his country as a king, he wrote many psalms, which were heartfelt prayers as he works out his relationship with God. Psalm 23, it's a great psalm of confidence and assurance and the goodness of God. But think of David. David actually didn't grow up living the perfect life. He was the youngest in his family, and he was picked on. That's me. How many of you are the youngest? You know what it's like when you're picked on by those older siblings and just putting you into place. David knew what it was like. And even though he was anointed to be the king, he spent many years of his life Hunted down by King Saul. Life was not completely easy for him. Psalm 13, also written by David, really is a prayer of doubt. Four times in this short chapter he writes, as you think just the verses 1 and 2, How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's a really penetrating question. How long will you hide your face from me? In the Old Testament, we're taught about this great blessing in the book of Numbers. You know it, that great blessing. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. David certainly knew this blessing, but now he felt like God's face was hidden. And God's face was no longer shining on him. The psalm continues, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will this enemy triumph over me? What's going on here with David? 
Here is a picture of an individual who is connected with God, who loves God, and who also doubts God. It's like he's saying, I'm calling out to you, but you're not answering me. And David concludes, I trust in your unfailing love. But David does not hide or bypass his doubts, his questions, and his loss of finding the face of God. Think of David also with his doubts and struggles. I want to consider also with you this life of John the Baptist. Think now of him. What do you know about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, he had a miraculous birth. An angel came to John's father to tell him of the great plans that God would have for his son. This child would prepare the way for the Lord. And think of John the Baptist growing up and having Jesus as his cousin. Could you imagine going to family get-togethers and family gatherings, having Jesus as your cousin there at all the parties that you went to? And as a young man, John the Baptist preached powerfully. John the Baptist called people to repentance. Many people confessed their sins through John the Baptist's powerful preaching. And John the Baptist baptized them. And then when John saw Jesus coming, as now they're young adults, and John the Baptist is preaching, and he sees Jesus come close to the scene, and he looks at his cousin, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist talked about the Messiah coming, and he said, when the Messiah comes, this Messiah is going to bring an axe, and he's going to bring an axe to the tree, and he's going to chop down All that is not good. You know what? John the Baptist had tough words. He was sure that God was going to bring judgment and to judge sinners. And then John the Baptist started watching Jesus, what he was doing. And instead of seeing the Messiah judge sinners, John the Baptist started watching Jesus eating with sinners. John the Baptist expected the Messiah to be involved in acts of judgment, not in acts of mercy. And I want you to feel John the Baptist's disappointment, and in fact, doubt, when he asks this profound question in Matthew 11.3, where he says this, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? Can you feel the depths of John the Baptist's struggle after he has said all of these wonderful and powerful things about Jesus? John the Baptist expected God to work in a certain way and was surprised to find him acting in another way. John the Baptist was passionate in his relationship with God and in his conviction John the Baptist challenged King Herod 
for his inappropriate behavior of marrying his brother's wife. Well, you want to get into trouble, you challenge the king. And John the Baptist spoke out and Herod threw him into prison. And now John the Baptist is languishing in prison. And can you hear John the Baptist saying, if you're really the Messiah, what am I doing here in prison? If you reward the good people and you punish the righteous, then what am I doing here? John the Baptist was working through a very personal disappointment. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? I don't know if you know the name Matthew Henry. He was a Bible commentator. He lived 300 years ago. And as he was reflecting on that very verse, he wrote this. He said, Where there is true faith, yet there may be a mixture of unbelief. The best are not always alike strong. Jesus knew about John the Baptist's doubts. And yet he said in Matthew 11, Jesus said this about John the Baptist, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist struggled And yet it was said of him, there's been no one greater. And then when John the Baptist was so disappointed, he sent message to Jesus and he said, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus said, well, here's my message. Through me, the blind see. Through me, the deaf hear. Through me, the lame get up and walk. It's as if Jesus was saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but I am not doing everything exactly the way that you are expecting it and exactly with the timing that you expect. We must lay aside our preconceptions and trust God in the way that he will act. Well, these are stories of heroes of faith who in fact struggled with questions and doubts about who God was and how God was working. And what inspired me, what inspires me with them is that these were real people. These were real people like you and like me. But the wonderful thing about each of their lives is that they kept pointing their feet towards God They kept talking to God. They kept talking to God even with their struggles and pouring out their hearts of their struggles to God. And they kept looking for God. These doubts of wondering, is God listening? And I think, though, I think about it this way. I think I needed to revise my first question. I can be saved even if I struggle with doubts and questions. Os Guinness says this, The shame is not that people have doubts, but that they are ashamed of them. want now to go now to part two. Now to think with you as we think about this little New Testament book of Jude. 
Jude, verses 20 to 25. And to think of this question, but what do I do with my doubts? Do you want your faith to grow? Do you want your faith to flourish? Do you want your faith to be strengthened? Then come with me to explore a few brief verses in this book, and I pray it will be a help to you. So let's go. Verse 20. Verse 20 says this, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. By building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. These words, it starts by this, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. I'm convinced that our minds matter. We love God with our minds. We love God with our minds and we love God by faith. And Jude says that you and I have a part in building our faith. Jude's words are a lot like Jesus, where he says in the Sermon on the Mount that the wise person is the one who builds their lives on Jesus' words, hearing and obeying his teaching. Jesus talks about this idea that everyone is building a house, and each house faces a test. Houses build on a good foundation survive, and houses build on sand crumble. But it's not just the physical homes that you see in the neighborhood. Your life, in fact, is a house that is being constructed and built day by day and year by year. We're all house builders. Like it or not, we all make choices. We all make these choices every day And we make these choices whether we like it or not. It's not optional. We have to build our lives somewhere. We have to build on some foundation. We all choose how to construct our lives. The skeptic holds back. The skeptic holds back and says, I'm not going to commit because I don't have enough evidence yet. But Jesus says you have to build somewhere. And that's the reality for every single person. In the end, we have to choose. We have to decide whether we are going to spend our lives praying or not praying. We have to decide whether we are going to spend our lives worshiping or not worshiping. It's not optional. We have to cast our ballot and choose to live in a certain way. We can't hold back on this. I love this definition of faith. Faith is a choice that is made in favor of God. It is a readiness to make the next step to move in a Godward direction. If you have never had faith, you can choose to have faith today. And if your faith has gone flat, your faith can be refreshed question here. How many of you can ride a bicycle? Hands. How many of you can be, ride a bicycle? You know what? There's lots of hands going up. Now, next question is this. How many of you learned how to ride a bicycle by reading a book about it or by watching a YouTube video about it? No hands. 
That's not how it works. I still remember the nervousness of pedaling on that bike. The very first day, I I want you to go back. For some of you, it might be five years. For some of you, it might be 70 years. Go back in your memory, and I'm going back. Oh, I think it's, it's not 80 years, but it is, wow, it's 52 or 53 years. It, it's even a little longer. <laughs> and, and I remember my friend Dave Barnett holding the back of the bike and me getting on and him guiding me and pushing me. And then the exhilaration of me riding all by myself and doing it. And now, just a couple days ago, I got on my bike. I still do it without thinking very much about it at all. I get on and I love it. Faith is in some way like this. You have to climb on. If you are saved You are a follower. And Jesus calls them disciples. He calls you a disciple if you are a follower, which means a following learner. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jude says, build yourselves up. There's something you can do about it. And he says, build yourselves up in your most most holy faith. He doesn't say, build yourself up. You know, as if for each person, it's like a separate little project. You do it by yourself, and you do it by yourself, and you never do it with anybody else. Build your faith up with each other. When your faith is weak, you can lean on me. And when my faith is weak and faltering, I can lean on you. You know, let me say this. If you do not have a Christian friend with whom you can share your faith and your doubts, trying to live this Christian life will be much harder. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Then we get to verse 21. Jude says, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I want to focus on that little phrase, keep yourselves in God's love. There are reasons why I believe in Jesus. But in the end, we never argue people into the kingdom of God. Jesus never said this, believe all of my arguments and you're good. Jesus said, follow me. And that means that Jesus is a lover who is trying to woo you. Sooner or later, the way to have one's faith grow is through a step of trust and risk in the God who loves you. Being really smart, having and even having a lot of faith, is not the finish line. The mark of Christian maturity is our love for one another. Keep yourselves in God's love. Love isn't separated from faith. Rather, love is the outpouring of faith. That's why Paul writes in the book of Galatians, here's the only thing that counts. Paul says it. 
He says, the only thing that counts is this. Faith expressing itself through love. So question, another question. You're not going to be able to answer this. Can I prove that my wife loves me? Hmm. What I can tell you is this, is I trust her. But imagine that somebody pushes the point with me and says, imagine somebody says, she might be fooling you. She doesn't really love you. She just wants all your money. Ha, ha, ha. Um, Somebody might say, "Um, what you need, Sheldon, is a camera to keep your wife under surveillance 24 hours a day. Then you wouldn't have any doubts, right? Wouldn't you want that? Now, the correct answer is no. Um, and, And I do not want a Sheila Cam because we have given each other the gift of trust. And when we trust each other, we are ready to risk it with each other. It's the way to intimacy. It's the way to a deep relationship. There is an intersection of faith and love. An intersection of faith and love. Jesus is in the life-changing business. Uh, John Ortberg wrote these words. I never heard anybody say, One day I realized that there was no God, no one behind reality, no life after death. I realized existence is a meaningless accident begun by chance and destined for oblivion, and it changed my life. I used to be addicted to alcohol, but now the law of natural uh, selection has set me free. I used to be greedy, but now the story of the Big Bang has truly made me generous. I used to be afraid, but now random chance has made me brave. But here's what I do see. I see people's lives being filled with hope and purpose when they consider how deeply they are loved. And isn't that why Jude wants to say this? Keep yourselves in God's love. Verse 22 in this passage has this next little word. Be merciful to those who doubt. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that Jude included that little verse and that that verse is in the Bible. It teaches us, first of all, that our role is to listen thoughtfully and carefully to others, to nudge them, to love them, and to encourage them to come to faith in the one who gives us life. Mercy is not an intellectual word. You know, it's not be argumentative with those who doubt. Be persuasive with those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. It's a compassion word. It's a helping word. If you are struggling, come. May I put my arm around your shoulder and may we walk together on this path as we help each other. We walk by faith, not by sight. It means that we are not now 
in a place where 100% certainty and clarity is with us all the time. There is a place where doubt and faith can coexist. Now, I don't know exactly where the line is where doubt becomes corrosive because I believe also there's a dangerous and a negative side of doubt. But there is a sunny side of it. There is a good side of it where I believe that where there is absolutely no doubt, there is no healthy faith either. And this also, if we are called to be merciful to others who doubt, then what if I am the doubter? Then we can show mercy to ourselves when we doubt. God is not giving up on you. He wants you to grow. And now at the end of the service, after we sing our closing song in a few moments, we're going to close with Jude's benediction. And it starts with this little phrase. We're not going to look at it all now because we're going to read it all at the benediction. But Jude writes this, To him who is able to keep you from falling. Now that's powerful, isn't it? The one who is able to keep you from stumbling. The one who is able to keep you from losing your way. This is the God who is able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy. Whatever you are struggling with, God is not struggling about what his plan is for you. And his plan is good things for you. What is far more important than our own unsteadiness is God's faithfulness and his sure plan for you. What is so wonderful and sweet is to trust in Jesus and his unfailing love. Would you join together with me in prayer? Let's, let's pray together, friends. Oh Lord, we do want to say this. It is so sweet to trust in you. Lord, we thank you that we can meet here together and understand that faith is not just a solitary project, not just something that we do all by ourselves, but it's something that as we gather together in the church, that our lives are enriched and our faith is strengthened. And that we, in fact, you invite us to help to build each other up. It's not just even you doing it, but we get to do that with each other. Lord, we think of your words. Lord, we say, Lord, we believe. Help us in our struggles and our unbelief. Would you strengthen us as we walk with you today? Would you help our faith to grow and would you help us to be faith builders with one another? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.